some types think they are the best type, but they are not. <laughs> and some types think they are the worst type, and they are not. No type is any better or any worse. Hey everyone, welcome back to University. I'm Anne Marie Chiresso, your host and coach. On today's show, I've got an extra long bonus episode for you on the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a personality system similar to Myers Briggs, which most people know, but more in depth. And it's also an effective tool for personal growth and transformation. It describes nine distinct personality types, and for each type, describes the habitual patterns of thinking feeling, and behaving that keep us from being fully present and available to respond from presence rather than from reactivity. Debbie Burdett is an expert of the Enneagram and founder of the Enneagram Group and a good friend of mine. She's also, prior to studying the Enneagram and becoming an Enneagram expert, a lawyer for over 20 years. And she's married to a previous guest on the show, another one of my mentors, Jim Duthmer. I picked Debbie because I've learned so much from Debbie over the years, so you're in for a real treat. I love the work of the Enneagram. It has taught me so much about myself and informs me so much about those I work with. So if you'd like to take the test yourself, you can hop over to Enneagram.is. That's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M dot I-S. You get a $5 discount code when you use the discount code BREATHE, B-R-E-A-T-H-E. But I recommend you listen first, take a guess, and see if you can figure out, based on mine and Debbie's conversation, which Enneagram most feels right to you. Then go take the test and see how close you are, see how your guessing went. So let's go to the conversation as Debbie tells me why there isn't a typical elevator pitch for the Enneagram. I don't have a great elevator pitch either because there, it doesn't fit into an elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. It's it's an incredibly complex, profound, deep system of personality, spirituality, life. So when I begin to talk about the Enneagram, I like to talk about it in very simple terms because mm-hmm. the complexity and the depth can be a barrier to people really using it and understanding it and having it be meaningful, but it doesn't need to be. So what I suggest is people start simple and then work their way in as they're ready. So makes perfect sense. Baby steps, just baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah. And when I teach it, I teach it kind of in chunks. So I have a very specific system for teaching it so that it starts simple and then allows people to go deeper when they're ready. So an elevator pitch for the simple approach would be it's a profoundly accurate personality system that describes nine different personalities. By that, I mean it describes automatic patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving that each of us has. There are nine types. Each of Everybody is one core type. We lead with one core type. Well, We have characteristics of all the types or many of the types and some strong characteristics of other types. Our core type 
is the same throughout our life, doesn't change. And we can have profound change within that type, but it doesn't move from one type to another. So how's that? Is that a what are you looking for for an elevator speech? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's perfect. And of course, I have 20 questions as I think it through. So I'm trying to, I yeah, want to ask really good questions. The first one that really comes up is how soon can you identify your type? How early in life? The experts have moved to believing that we are born at least with the predisposition to type. And that by two, three, four years old, it's pretty well determined or pretty well established. How we determine type and whether we should determine type at that age is another question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the experts are, have disagree where, you know, people are kind of all over the place. What my opinion is, is I think it's helpful for parents to kind of be tuned into children at that age and look for patterns, but not to... Uh, label them as a two or a four when they're children. But it can be helpful in knowing how to parent if you see certain patterns. Yeah, and I imagine it's helpful for us as we become more self-aware, you know, in our teenage and young adult years to know our type so that we can develop and build our own self-awareness. Exactly. So there are basically two reasons to learn the Enneagram. Well, three. One would be it's fun and interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's the what, main reason what, for me. <laughs> like it's just fun. It gets people interested initially. The two primary reasons really are your own self-awareness. It, uh, it is an amazing tool for increasing your self-awareness. And as we know, Amory, you know, when you work with leaders, that is such an important thing to have is good self-awareness. In fact, there's a there was a study of the 67 competencies of great leaders and self-awareness was one of the top four. Wow. Um, and the ancient Greeks know thyself, you know, we, it, it's just something we have always known and it's very, very important. And in my opinion, there's no better tool for self-awareness than the Enneagram yeah. because the way it works, it describes patterns that are so automatic that we're not aware we're doing them. So we have blind spots or we think, well, everybody's like that. Or we just don't even know this about ourselves, but we'll read or learn about these patterns and then we'll start observing ourselves and we'll see, oh my gosh, that's that pattern. And for me personally, I've been studying the Enneagram for about 20 years and I'm still seeing new ways that these patterns are showing up for me. So it's like really? a lifelong learning. Yeah. In wow. fact, you know, in this new instance, you know, in this new circumstance of um, shelter in place, yep. yeah, huh, and not you no know, contact and quieter things are emerging for me that I see as related to my enneagram type. Well, why don't you tell listeners? Because I already know, but tell listeners what your enneagram type is, and then we'll go into typing. I don't want to do that quite yet, but what is yours? I'm type nine, which is the mediator. Um, <laughs> It's a type that's just kind of a go along to get along. My focus is out. We'll get to, into more of that. We'll but, get into more. Yeah. So you're a nine yeah, and I'm yeah, a one. Yeah. So for everyone listening in, you're, you're talking to a nine and a one, which are actually next to each other on the Enneagram because the Enneagram is a circle. So it starts at the top with nine, right? Right. Real quick, because a lot of people will say, well, how is this different than Myers-Briggs or, or a test like that? Mm -hmm. How do you answer that question? Well, in a lot of ways, it's very similar. It describes 
aspects of our personality helps us understand each other and, and ourselves better. What's different about the Enneagram is its complexity. It's much more complex and much deeper, and there's just so much more to it than the, than the other systems. And instead of just describing our type, what it is, it's actually a tool for personal and spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't just describe our personality in a fixed way. It gives us insights that are intended to help us expand and transform and grow. And it's actually a very dynamic system. But I mean by that is there's so much movement with this in the system, but also it gives us information that we use then to change and move ourselves. What I like about it is Myers-Briggs is sort of like a label. It labels people, mm-hmm. whereas the Enneagram helps us understand ourselves more deeply. So developing that self-awareness piece and then is also used for a tool for transforming things that aren't necessarily serving us. Whereas I feel like when people get measured in Myers-Briggs, they'll say you know something like, I'm an introvert. That's just the way I am. It's almost as if like, I'm going to lock myself into this label because some test told me that I am. Whereas my experience of being in the Enneagram is it explains my patterns and where they came from and, and how they've evolved. But it also gives me sort of a little map, a roadmap for, well, if that one's not serving me so well, there's a way I can shift that through my self-awareness and so that, it, that I can transform it into something that is a, you know, higher experience of myself. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So a lot of people feel initially like they're resistant to the Enneagram because they think, don't put me in a box. Mm -hmm. You don't label me as a type seven. I'm partly seven, but I'm a four and a six. And so what we Enneagram teachers say is you're already in a box. The the Enneagram is your way out. (laughs) (laughs) And what I mean by that is the Enneagram describes our automatic patterns that are so automatic, we don't know we're doing them and we don't have any control over them. They actually control us. Like certain types, something will happen, they'll get triggered and they'll just explode in anger. They can't help themselves. But what the Enneagram does is it helps us see those patterns and kind of back up to where, you know, before the trigger, so we have that increased self-awareness loosen the grip of those automatic patterns of behavior so that then we can make more conscious choices. There's a story that we that I sometimes use in teaching the Enneagram. It's a Sufi tale about a man who was unjustly imprisoned and his wife wove a prayer rug. She found the design of the lock that was on his jail cell and she wove the design of the lock into his prayer rug. And so in, in his, as he's doing his prayers, he sees this and he manages to get some tools and fashions a key and opens the door and is free. And so what this is a metaphor for is the Enneagram is that design on the rug. It's the map that'll allow us to fashion a key to open the cell so we can be free. It's a way to free ourselves from yes. ourselves. That's so <laughs> that brilliant. Yes, I love it. <laughs> and so when you talk about freedom in that way, explain a little bit more about what you mean. What do we need to free ourselves from? 
Well, we all have these ways that we behave that we're just sick of ourselves about them. You know, some people just can't help feeling shame kind of constantly. Mm -hmm. And some people can't help getting really angry about things or trying to control other people. And some people can't help being scared that something terrible is going to happen. So those keep us from actually being free and being fully alive and living in the essence of who we truly are. It's like the functioning of our personality is really keeping us from being who we're really meant to be. And reaching our fullest potential. Right. Really holds us back. And then we're not happy because we're not fulfilled. And we are the only things getting in our own way. That's what I think is so brilliant about all this. This is what, this is what I see. um, When you say freedom, it's what I think is like, how can we get out of our own way? Because we're all that's keeping ourselves from having this experience of reaching our highest potential and being our fullest selves and being happy and all of that stuff. That's right. And part of that too, is not putting too high expectations on ourselves, not pushing ourselves too hard and being really accepting of ourselves as human beings. Yes. Oh, that's a piece of it too. Okay. So let's get to the meat of it. Let's talk about the different types, the nine different types. Okay. So I'm a one, you're a nine. And when I first started doing the Enneagram, which is way back, I think 10 or 12 or 15 years ago, I self-typed myself as a two. So after you're done describing the types, I want to talk a little bit about that. But for anyone listening in, for years, I thought I was a two. And I was, I sort of went about the world believing this about myself. And it was really interesting when you typed me, because then I got a, you know, formally typed by you. So let's first talk about the types, and then we'll get back into that. Okay, so I'm going to back up just a little bit, because another piece of the Enneagram is it recognizes that we have three centers of intelligence. We have our intellect, which is our IQ. We have our heart or our emotional intelligence, which is our EQ. And then we have a body intelligence or an instinct, a gut instinct, which there are people now are calling that our BQ. And the Enneagram divides the nine types into those three centers. And I start with this because it's a little bit sometimes helpful if you're just trying to discover your type, entering through which one of those centers is yours. Mm-hmm. And what that means is if you're a head type, the intellectual center, you tend to lead with thinking. You can be very intellectual, think a lot. You know, you start with your thinking and you can also overthink. The heart types are more about relationships and connection and feelings and people and reading people and image. And then the body types are more about instinct and control and uh, not wanting to be controlled and have a little bit more of a connection to their anger than the other types. I'll start with the body types since that's you and me. Okay. So I'll start with my own type, type nine. It's a body type. So there's a connection to the anger, but nines are usually not aware of their anger. And so what I'm going to do for each of the types is talk about there's an underlying belief system or kind of a worldview that drives the type. So it's not just a random set of characteristics. There's a very logical, natural way that your Enneagram type develops. So there's this underlying belief system or worldview. Because you have a particular worldview, you're going to be focused on certain things. Your attention is going to naturally be drawn to certain 
and things. And you're going to have blind spots, the opposite of that. And then there's also going to be an emotional drive. So those three things work together to then drive you to have certain personality characteristics. Where does the underlying belief system or worldview generate? Where does it come from? Well, each of us has a childhood experience that we interpret to create that worldview. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily what happened to you in childhood. It's more how you interpret what happened to you in childhood. So for the nine, type nine, what my belief system is, is that I don't really matter. What really matters is other people. I just need to, in order to get uh, loved and and to fit in, I need to fly under the radar not make waves. I need to tune into everybody else so that I can smooth things out. Conflict is bad. I don't want any conflict. I don't want people to be upset, particularly with me. So my worldview, my general motivation is going to be about keeping the peace, keeping things smooth, kind of making sure everybody gets along, that I get along to go along. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I was a middle child. So I can tell you all kinds of stories from my childhood that support that worldview. But what's true about all of us is we're predisposed to seeing the world a certain way. And then we mold what it is that happens to us into that worldview. Because what we know about this is when you look at a family with three, like I have four naturally born boys. Okay. They're four different Enneagram types. They had the same parents. They had the same set of circumstances. They interpreted them differently. I always wonder that. Yeah. Say you have an alcoholic, abusive father. You can respond to that by thinking, I need to be tough and I need to be stand up against him. and I need to be strong. That would be one type. And another would be, I need to take care of everybody around me and be really good and really nice and really helpful. Or I need to be scared. I need to kind of hide in my room and make sure that everything's okay before I come out. So it's just three different reactions to the same circumstance. Right. So it's, it's not as if the circumstance is shaping the reaction. It's the circumstance is happening. And then mm-hmm. the reaction is in reaction to what's happening that they're, right. they're both independent of one another. That's right. And what we know from their scientific studies that show that we see what we're looking for. Yes. So if you expect that the world is going to be dangerous, you're going to see the danger. If you expect the world is going to be positive and fun and happy, that's what you're going to see. Yeah, that's, oh gosh, that's so true. And that's such a key thing to remember because you get what you're looking for. We totally do. And and this relates to the second aspect that I'm talking about, about each type. There's underlying belief, but then there's the focus of attention. Mm -hmm. And the focus of attention is so important. It's critical to transformation. We know from some of the scientific studies and the imaging of the brain that by changing your focus of attention, you can actually change the structure of your brain. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So understanding our our automatic focus of attention with the Enneagram and then learning how to loosen that and maybe shift it or expand it is really important. I like to say that this is actually a good place to start with the Enneagram by really learning about your focus of attention and beginning to shift it. Yeah. I think the key thing here is we're all empowered to shift anything that's occurring. 
you know, just because right. we have this particular label or we fall into this particular category, it doesn't mean we're at the effect of it. So one of the things that I notice when people start typing themselves is they'll go, well, I'm, I'm a two. That's just the way I am. Again, kind of like the Myers-Briggs thing. And that's not the point here. The point is in here to, to say you're at the effect of this label the point is you can actually shift and transform. This is just information to help you become more aware. So underlying belief system is the first. Second is focus attention. What's the third? The third is the emotional drive. And it's in Enneagram language, this is referred to as the vice or the passion. Okay. Um, and for the type nine, it's called sloth. And there are a lot of words in the Enneagram that are not really very relevant to today and they're kind of hard to understand they and they have particular meanings that aren't the dictionary meanings so that can be a hindrance to people but look beyond that i suggest Mm -hmm. you just look beyond it so the the sloth for the nine is really about an inertia and it's an inertia mostly related to your own personal self-development and taking a stand for yourself or um, taking care of yourself so I can work really, really hard if it's for somebody else. But if somebody says, what do you want? And why don't you go for what you want? I get this like feeling and it's, it's an emotion. It's a feeling that comes over me. It's like, I just, oh, I just can't. It's just so hard to do that, you know, (laughs) to take a stand or to speak up, especially if somebody doesn't like it, you know, it's like this visceral feeling about it. This is a podcast, so listeners can't see, although sometimes we take clips and post them on social media. But um, what I really appreciated as you were describing yourself is like the utter joy on your face around it, like holding it really lightly, like not making this so serious. It's not because one might say sloth and it has all these quote unquote negative consequences that you were describing, like I can't stand for myself. But you're just like, sort of joyfully describing it like it's just the way it is and I don't take it too seriously so do you think that's important to not take all this so seriously oh it's essential it really is it's notice and accept and also remember that the things that you see in your Enneagram patterns that you don't like are just the flip side of the great strengths of your type Mm -hmm. so the strength of the nine is I am really good at making sure everybody gets along and really tuning into people and knowing what needs to happen to have everything run smoothly. And it's like nines are the grease that keep the wheel moving. And so too much of that, and I can be self-forgetting and that hurts me, but there's also on the other side of it, a real contribution. Yeah. And it's it's the real strength. It's a real strength. Yeah. There there is a flip side to all of it. So now, now I'll go to one, which is Anne-Marie's type. So again, this body type. So there's underlying all three of the body types, there's an anger. So the underlying belief of the one is that in order to be loved and approved of and valued, I have to be good. I have to be right. I have to do things well. I can't make mistakes. I have to fix things and make the world a better place. <laughs> So true. Yeah. And in, in the case of some ones, I have to help other people be their best, which Anne Marie, I see is such a gift for you. 
so and that, that you give the world you really want to help people yeah and it's so sincere ones are so sincere mm. so the focus of attention then of a one is going to be what's right and wrong particularly what's wrong and needs to be corrected mm -hmm. they're all about making things better so scanning is the picture crooked or is the weather bad or is the punctuation incorrect or there's spelling errors yep you know somebody isn't behaving correctly or the countertop is messy climate change or gun control yep. or feeding the hungry a lot of ones who are a lot of the people who are in charge of these you know global issues and these humanitarian issues that are so important the people leading the charge might be a one because they've got so much commitment to helping and making things better. Yeah, I cannot walk into a room without seeing what needs to be fixed. Like, like you said, that picture's crooked, that light, the lighting's not quite right. It's a big joke <laughs> in my house that I walk into a room and I change everything and everyone's like, you walk in, you walk out. What, what do you care what the room looks like? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, I can't, <laughs> I can't help it. In my 20s, I was an interior designer. That was my career. So interior design and architecture. And it was just everything had to be perfect and just right. And my house has to be perfect and just right. And like, I can't not see what's wrong ever. And I see it in myself more and more and more and more and more. The more aware I am, I'm like, oh, there I go again. Even just in this, our conversation, like my desk, I'm, I keep straightening things and arranging things or the way I'm writing on the piece of papers, I'm taking notes with you. It's like, that's not, those notes aren't quite right. So it's hmm. such the lens for which I see the world and this anger piece. It's so true of me because when it's not the way I believe it needs to be, I get so activated and so angry about it. That's mm -hmm. like, so. Yeah. So. So then that third piece, the emotional drive for the one is anger, but it usually shows up more as frustration or irritation that things aren't right. Things aren't perfect. I made a mistake or he made a mistake or my desk is messy. But it again, it's like a body instinct. It's a gut feeling of something's wrong and it's connected to anger, but ones are very careful not to express anger inappropriately because this is one of the they need to be appropriate in order to be loved and valued or to be good so i can't yell at anybody yeah or be inappropriate so they tend to hold on to the anger it's kind of stored in their body but also and i want to say from what you were saying that how you have to make things right and exactly perfect you can see from that that it is a blessing and the curse, right? Yes. Because it is a blessing. You you make things better everywhere you go. And if you touch something, it gets better. Mm. But at the same time, you can overdo it. Yep. Ones need to get that like 99.9% .9 right instead of maybe some 80% is good enough and then you can go home and rest. Yeah, learning to let go has been a huge lesson for me. And and also yeah. this idea of seeing everything as perfect just the way it is has been a really, yes. really beautiful, big lesson that I've gotten. Yeah, that's huge. Just perfectly imperfect. Yes. That was the name <laughs> of my first coaching business, Perfectly Imperfect. 
Really? Uh-huh. Oh, that's great. I love that. So yeah. you learned that lesson early on. Are you? The thing is, for all of us, and I'll just use the one here as an example, you know that, but doing it is the hard part because exactly. of these automatic patterns. So that's why, you know, when you learn the Enneagram, you see the patterns, you can't just say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. It doesn't work. You really do need all the practices that I know that you talk about elsewhere and the conscious leadership group does. And you just need all those practices. That's the key in that Sufi story. You still have to make the key and open the lock. Just knowing it isn't going to do it for you. Yeah. And to speak to what you said um, on the top of the call, you've been practicing for 20 years or more. I've been mm-hmm. practicing for 10 years or more. Um, and we're still learning. We're still learning. Right. So it's not as if like you get to some spot and you figure it all out and then you're over, over right. it. It's, it's a constant yeah. evolution. And this idea of bringing that self-compassion in and just like, oh, exactly. there, there I go yes. again. Yes. Anything more about ones that you want to say? I think that's good. So then I'm going to go back to eight because that's the other body type. Eights are much more comfortable expressing their anger. Eights yes, are, they are interesting and they're usually pretty distinct and easier to spot than some of the other types. The nine yeah. you called the mm-hmm. peacemaker. What did you call the one? the perfectionist or the reformer got it again different schools different books have different words so i like to use the numbers because they're neutral but then it. It, you know it does help to use words because people can remember then oh that oh yeah that's this one so what would be your shorthand name for eight then the challenger or the boss or the protector and again listeners be careful not to like attached to those labels too tightly because I, I appreciate what you said, Debbie. The name the numbers are right. neutral. Okay, great. So eight. So eight, the underlying belief is the world is hard and unjust, where the people take advantage of the weak, the strong take advantage of the weak. So I have to be tough. I have to protect people. I have to close off my heart and protect myself and power up and be strong. So I'm going to be looking for truth and justice and injustice. And I'm going to be kind of a mama bear taking care of everybody. Mm. And I cannot show my own weakness or vulnerability. I cannot or I will be overtaken. (laughs) So I have to be strong and tough. So my focus of attention then is going to be on who's in control, who has the power, And can they be trusted? If they can be trusted, then I can relax. If they can't, I need to take charge. I need to be, you know, step in. Also in their focus of attention is justice and injustice, whether there's um, bullshit. (laughs) They, They do not like deception, manipulation. There's straight talkers. Tell it like it is, you know, and really, really feel strong and forceful about that. And then the underlying emotion is called lust but again this is one of those words that has a particular meaning which is it's kind of a lust for life or an intensity Mm -hmm. they have a kind of insatiable need for intensity or tremendous amount of energy and drive and they get things done and they make things happen and have a huge impact in the world and in the meantime they can be like a bull in a china shop and leave it trail of destruction behind them. <laughs> so true. It's so true of the eights I know. Sometimes yeah. when an eight's coming, sometimes you just you know duck and run the other way. 
Yeah. You know, and they can't help it. Like I just have an example from today when I, I called in a grocery order and the woman, I don't know what type she is, but I thought she might be an ape because I was going a little too fast and telling her what I wanted. And she said, hold on there. I can't take it. I can't take it that fast. <laughs> like, like, like she's yelling at me about how long quickly I'm saying these. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you poor woman. I'm yes. so sorry. Yeah. And she can't help reacting that way. But then in reaction, you know, in my unconscious state, then I'm going to get mad at her and think you, whatever. Yeah. This <laughs> is an interesting I, example. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Instead, you did what? Yeah, well, no, I was just, I was just thinking this is a really helpful thing in the Enneagram because knowing it, I know people's patterns and I think, oh my gosh. And I, I opened my heart and had compassion with her. And I thought, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't need to go fast. And then she softened. Yes. So, so you're like really a great. you're like a model for her to like bring her back to some heart-centered connection. Yeah. But I think this is interesting because if we think about our types, right? Like so that woman, you're guessing she's an eight based on your experience. And obviously we don't know mm-hmm. no, but you can tell because you're so keyed into this. And a one might have reacted in a completely different way under that same stress, right? Like I can imagine myself getting scared that, oh, I'm not taking this list fast enough. I'm not being a good list taker, or, you know, and so my reaction in that might've been different and a nine would have reacted differently if they were taking the list. So this is how we can sort of begin to see each other because not everyone is going to yell, slow down in the same way that right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. All right. So that's eight. Okay, so those are the those are the body types. Body types. Um, and one thing, if you if you haven't eight in your life, just understand them. Underneath this blustery exterior, there's this huge heart. It's true. They're it's big so heart. soft on the inside, but they don't really let you show that, or they don't show it to you. So, you know, just see past the the crustiness and, and into the heart, the gooey heart. Right. And do what you did because you have that level of self-awareness and you were able to not trigger yourself in the face of her, you know, Mm -hmm. yelling at you, you were able to draw that essence out of her, that part of her that's also there. Right. I dropped into my vulnerability, which allowed her to do the same. Yes. And so sometimes we're not able to do that, right? Because we get reactive to someone's patterned behavior. Right. And so we could just know that about one another as we're navigating this, that the way we show up on the outside isn't necessarily what's behind that closed door. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so moving on to the heart types, two, three, four, the heart types, what they have in common is they're looking to other people. They're very, they have a very strong EQ and are good at reading other people and noticing how they're responding a large part of it's driven by their need to have a particular image. Mm -hmm. So they're good at managing their image. So for the type two, the image they want is to be a helper or a Mm -hmm. giver. And those are the words that are associated with type two, giver or helper. And the underlying belief was that when they were very, very young, they learned that in order to be loved and valued, they need to take care of people. They need to give. They need to um, be kind and generous. So maybe they took care of their mother and their mother praised them for that. 
So their focus of attention then is on other people. So it's out, not on themselves. The blind spot is their own needs and their own feelings. It, their attention is out and particularly what other people need that they can provide. So they're not necessarily going to be thinking about the starving children in Africa. They're going to be thinking about the people that they're in relationship, that they have close relationships with and what they need. And there's kind of a hierarchy to this. There are people who are really important and then less important. <laughs> yeah. And they're really good at knowing the difference. They will walk into a room and they might, who's the most important person in this room? To me, I'm going to go ingratiate myself to that person, see what I can do for them, be kind, compliment them, be funny, whatever it is that they need, I'm going to do. So great at understanding who to do it with and then what those, that person needs and then has a real, they have a real strong drive to give that person what they need, both material needs and emotional needs. And what's their vice? Their vice is called pride, but again, it's a particular kind of pride. It's a pride about, I know what you need more than you know what you need. And, <laughs> and I'm a little bit better than you are because I don't have any needs. You're the needy one. I don't have any needs. I'm fine. So twos tend to kind of compare themselves to, to other people, either better than or less than. And they kind of move back and forth between feeling better than somebody else and then feeling less than. And then a, a way that they make themselves feel better then is to go take care of people. Because if twos don't have anybody to take care of, what good are they? You know, they have no value. They really feel like this lack of sense of value if they don't have somebody they can care for. This is why I was typed as a two, because, well, we, we talked about, we haven't talked about this yet, and we won't have time because this is a short, short podcast. We don't have hours uh -huh. on end, yeah. and the Enneagram's so uh -huh. deep, but there's these wings, right? So two is right next to a one, and ones can sort of have two as their wing type. So as you guys are listening to Debbie speak to all these different types, recognize that you may have qualities of these other types, but they may not necessarily be your core type. So listen from that ear, because I can hear you speaking to the two and I'm like, oh yeah, I recognize that part of me. I could see that part of me and how closely tied it is to my one nature. But you also said this thing about how twos are paying attention to others' needs and not theirs, which sounded similar to a nine in the way you described nine. Right. Those are the two types that are focused out. All okay. the other types have a better balance of focusing on what I think, what I want, and looking out. But twos and nines are overbalanced and looking at others. But twos are particularly looking for this one thing. Nines are more of a general diffuse yeah. focus of attention out. And the Two is it's very specific on particular people and what they need that I can do for them. Thank you for that clarity. So incredibly generous and helpful and giving. I'm married to a two, and oh my gosh, it's divine. <laughs> you know, they're and they're very happy, upbeat, really great people. Yeah, it's so true. I, there's so many twos yeah. in my life, and we're grateful. Like the other thing I want to point out here is every type is important and valuable and has something important to contribute. So 
Exactly. And that's why on our work with teams, we see that you need all types. Now, you don't necessarily need a person of all types, but you need what that type represents. Mm-hmm. So all types have contributions and all types have challenges. Hey there. You know, we're all aware that these are unprecedented times. And with that inevitably comes a lot of fear, a lot of stress, and a lot of anxiety. And while these are challenging times, these are also times for cultivating resilience, personal growth and development, all valuable skills for you as the next generation of leaders. So I'd like to help you learn to thrive this year while navigating these challenges. This August, I'm offering my Drop the Drama workshops online for free to college students. My Drop the Drama program is designed to help you learn to take responsibility and take control when life feels out of control. You'll learn how to cultivate self-awareness, a fundamental skill of great leaders. You'll learn to be self-empowered and develop lifelong skills to navigate whatever challenges arise in the moment. So you're free to succeed. Hop over to annemariechiresso.me and find a date in August to drop into my free online workshop and set yourself up to thrive this year. Or text I am free to 474747 to get your free meditation and to learn more. Welcome back to university. You're listening to my conversation with Enneagram expert, Debbie Burdett. We've been talking about the underlying worldviews, focus of attention, blind spots, and emotional drives of the various Enneagram types. Let's rejoin the conversation as we dig into type three. Okay, three, the underlying belief here is that in order to be loved and valued, I need to be successful. I need Uh to win. (laughs) I need to be the best. So very, very competitive, driven, ton of energy to get things done. So their focus of attention then is on what needs to be done, tasks, goals, things that need to be done in order for me to be successful. And not just be successful, but to appear successful. So this is the other place their focus goes is to how people are perceiving me and whether they're perceiving me as the winner, the best, the good mother, the best student, the best athlete. So often the best athlete, the captain of the team, they're threes because they have that drive to be the best. So they will put in more hours, they'll work really hard. They also will choose activities where they can be the best. They don't particularly like to be just a member of the team. They want to be the captain. So they're not going to join a sport where they're going to be mediocre. Then their emotional drive is called deceit or vanity. And it's related to this image, not deceit in the usual context, because threes are often incredibly honest, good, clean people. Um, and pride themselves in their honesty. But it's more of a self-deceit. It's like they don't really accept their authenticity. 
um, their authentic self. It's I am the captain of the team rather than I'm just this human being. If that image is punctured in any way, if somebody sees their weaknesses or their mistakes or their failure, oh my gosh, failure is incredibly hard for a three. Um, it's just devastating to them because yeah. they are who they are perceived to be. You know, that's their identity. And you said something about competitive early on, like they need to be successful and competitive. I'm hearing people think, so if I'm competitive, I'm a three. How do you differentiate that? Because well, we're not necessarily yeah. one and the same, yes? No, and this is a, you know, in general, I would say when you're looking at trying to figure out what type you are, don't look at characteristics. Every single one of the nine types can be very competitive. Right. So just because you're competitive, you're not a three. So what you want to do is you want to look at that underlying belief. Do you truly believe or live your life as though your value comes from what you do rather than who you are? This comes back to the self-awareness stuff that we were talking right. about at the very beginning. This right. is self-awareness is so key because you right. have to understand where the, you know, the depth is coming from. Right. It's really about your motivation, you know, so like a we can be incredibly competitive and really need to win as well as a two. But if a two, if that competition is going to get in the way of a primary relationship or make uh -huh. somebody feel, you know, disconnected from that person, they're going to be less competitive. Whereas the three, it doesn't matter. They're going to just they're going to try and win at all costs. But I steer people away from these characteristics because it's it just can get confusing if you start looking there yeah and it also doesn't mean that threes don't care about their relationships it just means right. when they're like right. in the trance of their type they can get right. caught up in wanting to win more than prioritizing the relationship versus the two exactly all right fours we're on four four is oh my gosh four is like a beautiful this the word associated would be tragic romantic Mm -hmm. So they're very creative, romantic types. The underlying belief really is that there's something missing. There's something missing in me, something missing in my circumstance, something missing in life or in relationship. And if I could only get it, I would feel whole. <laughs> if I could only find that missing piece, then I would feel complete. I would feel whole. Life would be good. So they're focus then is going to be on that thing that's missing. They're, they're looking to the future for like longing for what might happen. They're incredibly creative and imaginative. So they might be imagining the beautiful wedding that they're going to have or the job that they're going to get or the beautiful song that they're going to write or, or looking back and how great it was in the past, how, how beautiful that relationship was. I'm using words that Forrest would use. It's, it's really about beauty and creativity and authenticity and those kinds of things. And so what they're missing, the blind spot, is the good of the here and now, particularly the ordinary of the here and now. Uh -huh. You know, it was more beautiful before or it's going to be in the future. But right now, oh, I don't know, it's not so much. What's the emotional so, drive? What did you say? The emotional that? drive is called envy, but it's more of a, like a longing for what they don't have. Yes, yeah, something's missing. 
Like yeah, what I have so, right now isn't enough. Right. And what you, you know, the, all the, the beautiful love songs or the, or the romantic movies illustrate this, you know, the lost love or the unrequited love, you know, that that's kind of the feeling and the outlook of the four. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So a lot of artists, singers, songwriters, creative types are fours. Yeah, and it, again, doesn't necessarily mean if you're listening, if you're an artist or a creative person, you are a four. Don't be quick to um, label yourself. But in my experience, too, lots of artists and creatives fall into that category. Right, because that's what they like. They mm-hmm. choose that. It's not that they're the only ones that could do it, but that's what they're drawn to. So yeah. often they go that direction. All right, so we've done body, we've done heart, heart, and now we're into the head types. Okay, one more thing about the four. The image that they are trying to foster is an image of being special or unique, mm-hmm. different. Because, again, they're all heart types are all concerned with managing their image. Ah, thank you. That okay, so sense. moving into the head types, then type five. Type five is called the observer. Their underlying belief is something like the world can be overwhelming, can take too much if there's not enough. So I have to protect myself by guarding my resources. And I do that by going into my head and thinking and learning. So they're very knowledgeable. They're very good with facts, information, data. They're often very smart, very good at analyzing, very good at taking very complex concepts and synthesizing down into something that's understandable. The other thing, the second thing they're focused on is potential demands or intrusions. They're very, very sensitive type and can easily get overwhelmed. So if there's too much stimulation, too much emotion, this is a type that does not like a lot of emotion. They prefer to just stay in their head, be rational, calm. And they do, like in crisis, they're fabulous because they can remain calm and just know exactly what needs to happen. The emotional drive then here is called avarice. And it's kind of a stinginess. It's like, I just don't have enough time and energy and resources to do all this. So a pattern for a five is they like to be alone. They like a lot of time to just decompress or spend time reading a book or they get home from work. They don't want their family jumping on them. Or if they have roommates, they need to have a place of their own, a quiet, solitary place where they can read their books or work on their projects because it's just too overwhelming to have all that stimulation. So there's certain behaviors that we have that are like innate that we do to protect ourselves in our patterns. Like if a parent was listening in and you have a child who's tending towards five qualities, they might want to spend a lot of time alone. And I could see how we, as a parent, can make that bad about our kids. Like, well, what's wrong with them? Why are they always alone? But it might just be their own self-protective nature taking care of themselves. Right. And it's so good to know that. Yes. Because the other thing is we can do the opposite of what we should do and get exactly the opposite of result that we want. So for example, if there's a teenager who's a five and he just needs a lot of time alone and the parent feels like they need more social engagement or whatever, and they, they try to get them engaged, then, then the five will retreat even more yes. because they feel that overwhelm and they will retreat even more and, the, and then the parent will intrude even more. And so it's, 
it just exacerbates the whole pattern rather than just giving them space. When they've had enough space, then they can come out. A lot of businessmen will tell me that when they get home from work, they just need 10 minutes. Yep. Give me 10 minutes to read my newspaper and then I'm really ready to engage. But if you don't give them that 10 minutes, their system can't settle down and engage. Yeah, and it's a really important thing to know when, when you're in a relationship to someone, what their patterns are and what they need so you can meet them where they are instead of, I think often we end up in relationship with people who are not our types because we don't ever get into relationship with people who are exactly our, our we, um, does right. that ever happen? Rarely. I know a few couples that are, I know a couple of pairs of eights. Usually we kind of are more attracted to the opposite. Yeah. That happens a lot. Which is true. But I me. wouldn't have, you know, it, it just occurred to me an example that goes back to your question about children. I have a grandson who's four. And since he was maybe one or two, when he comes into a room full of people, he gets on the floor, covers his head, and, or hides behind somebody. And it's just his reaction and knowing the Enneagram and think, I don't know that he's a five, but I right. think he might be a five or even whatever. But knowing that's about fives, I think, okay, he just needs to be left alone for a minute. Yeah. So rather than trying to tickle him or tease him out of it, we just leave him alone. And he works it out. And in a couple of minutes, he's fine. Yeah, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about the woman on the phone when you were placing your grocery order. Like when we just don't react to other people's reactions and give them the space they need to move through whatever it is they're moving through, we're not in a state of resistance. Therefore, they have nothing to push against. So then that behavior melts or just it right. has the space it right. needs to just be. But often, I think what we do as parents, as friends, in relationships with one another, we see a behavior that we don't necessarily like or understand, and then we push against it and we try and change it in the other because somehow it's not serving us. Right. So if I'm in a relationship right. with someone who wants to go have a bunch of time to their self, I might make that mean, if I'm a two, I might make that mean, oh, they don't need me. They don't love me. And, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's right. so interesting. And, you know, it's helpful to know the other person's Enneagram type, right? But even if you don't know the other person's type or if it's your child and you're not wanting to type them yet, you can recognize some of these patterns and learn from the wisdom of the Enneagram. Johan might not be a five, right. but knowing that about fives, I know how to treat him when he's reacted that way. Yeah. So I can, yeah. can be open and just allow. I can be right. accepting right. of what is in this now moment. Accepting of what is, yes. Because often when somebody's reactive, it's going to trigger the other person's reactivities too. And then you get <laughs> in this kind of persona interlock. <laughs> so if you if you're able to calm your system and just see the other person as being reactive and have compassion, open-heartedness, then you don't need to escalate. Right. Six. Six is the skeptic, loyal skeptic. And their underlying belief is that the world is dangerous and scary. And I need to scan for danger constantly so that I can be prepared and safe. So what they're looking for is safety, security, predictability. Mm -hmm. um, so their focus of attention then is going to be on in the future, anticipating what's going to go wrong, mm -hmm. what could potentially go wrong, so that they can be prepared. 
And what's really important to understand about the six is they can seem to be negative, always focused on what's going to be wrong, looking for what's scary, looking for what's bad, the bad things that are going to happen. But they sincerely want a good outcome. And in order to get a good outcome, you need to be ready for all the potential problems. Yeah. So that's their motivation is just they're taking care of us when they do that, even though it feels like they might be throwing cold water on our plans. They're really just trying to help. I'm feeling like just like the worst mother on earth right now because <laughs> Robert's a six. We think, we're, yeah, he's taking your test. He's a six. And he does have this like, it's the negative right away, like looking for what's wrong, but not knowing that, not being aware of that on the other side, it could be really draining as, as being in relationship with people who are always pointing out the negative and, and then you can make them bad. I've made him bad at times, like, stop it. Can't you ever look at the positive of anything? <laughs> and so I can almost further his negative perception because I'm making him feel bad for being just the way he is. Yeah. Uh, and also for once the six is has looked at all the bad things and comes up with a plan then their systems can calm down yeah then they can really be fully present yeah. like it, the interesting thing has happened to me at the sixes that i know of their response to this whole coronavirus has been really interesting really because Same they've more. been the ones that start that the first you know when you first it was coming around and i'm thinking i'm talking to a six and thinking you're gonna be they're like oh no, it's fine. One of them said, I've spent my whole life preparing for this. It's so, <laughs> it's so comforting to me to see everybody else running around like this. <laughs> it's really funny. It's really, so, it's so, they're calmer than the rest of us because they are so good at contingency planning and worst case scenarios and they've got it, you know, risk analysis and what's the emotional the emotional is drive. Uh, drive is the is fear. Uh, fear. A lot of sixes don't say I'm not afraid. They'll say I'm. It's more worry or anxiety because yeah. if you're spending all your time thinking about what's going to go wrong, you're going to worry. Yeah. But worry is not as troublesome to a six as it is to the rest of us. You know well, that's what we have it. to remember. Our own patterns are familiar. They're comfortable. You know, you look at somebody else's and you go, God, I'd hate to be like that. But that's just the way they are and they're they're okay with it. So we have to remember that about a six. We don't have to talk them out of being worrying about these things. But what sixes do need, and you're perfectly right, Anne-Marie, with Robert, is they need to also see their blind spot of all the things that could go right and have a better balance of all that could go right and all that could go wrong. Yeah, for the sixes that I know, and Robert's one of them, they can get into what I would call, and I think lots of people say this, is analysis paralysis, where like they freeze, they don't want to make a decision because they don't want to make the wrong decision. So uh -huh. I could spend- And they can't know everything that's going to come at them. So how could they know what they're going to do? <laughs> right, so they spend yeah. all this time analyzing and figuring out and figuring out and right. trying to create these scenarios, and then it just postpones making decisions. So um, I know that's a trait that happens. I mean, I do that too. Right. And so because of that, they're incredibly responsible, reliable, trustworthy, loyal, sincere, uh, you know, really good, good friends and great 
to have on your team because you need somebody who's looking out at, at all those things. Yeah. All right. Gosh, last but not least, <laughs> seven. It seems so funny to end at seven. Seven. I know. I do this often because sevens are so impatient. And I, I, I like to win. Oh, I'm married to a seven. Yeah, and they like it's good for them to hear about everybody else. <laughs> I love this. All right. So, so sevens, uh, still in the head types, sevens motivation is the world is full of pain. So I have to protect myself by being happy. <laughs> What's the label? Give me the label for the seven. I know you don't oh, like the, Well, the epicure or the enthusiast. Um, this so is true. the most positive, optimistic type. And they do that because underneath, they ha- they're afraid of being consumed by pain and negativity. So they have to stay on the high side, stay positive. Their focus of attention is interesting ideas, plans, possibility. What's the next adventure we're going to take? What restaurant are we going to go to? What company am I going to start? What class am I going to take? What new thing am I going to learn? How can I take this radio apart and learn how it works? But then I get halfway through and I want to see something else I want to see. <laughs> so, so there's kind of a shiny penny syndrome where it's like there's so many fun things out there to do. And I just want to do all of them. But they kind of skim the surface of, the, of doing a little bit of everything. The downside then to that is that they don't necessarily complete everything that they start. They get a lot of balls rolling so they can get really, really busy. <laughs> Too much going on. I'm living it's, with two sevens right now, Debbie. <laughs> like, oh, you are? Is your nephew a seven too? My nephew's a seven. Uh-huh. And Uh-oh. Kim, as you know, is a seven. <laughs> They're so yeah. fun. They're so, so fun. fun. Yeah. But during it's been really interesting living with my husband, Kim, who's a seven, during this coronavirus, you know, shelter in place time. Because you're right, like all the fear pushed away. And there's project after project, like he'll start, I don't know, vacuuming and then something else will grab his attention and the vacuum is just sits there, plugged in, half done. And then next thing you know, he's like taking apart the toilet and then all of a sudden, and literally these, you're, like you said, it's like this wake of started, half-started projects, just something else grabs his attention and cons all over the house. This past five weeks has been interesting. So threes and sevens can look a lot alike because they've got a lot of things going on. But one of the differences, the motivation for the three is it's, or for the seven, I'm sorry, is it's fun. It's interesting. Yeah. I want to do it because my attention is going there because it's so interesting to me the emotional drive here is called gluttony Mm -hmm. and it's like an insatiable need for that fun and interesting thing the next fun interesting thing but underlying that there is an anxiety or a fear that when they get into a bad space or when they get too overwhelmed they can get pretty anxious Mm -hmm. all right so we've been through all the types now one question that comes up a lot is is one type better than the other. We all want to be the best type. Absolutely not. Some types think they are the best type, but they are not. (laughs) (laughs) And some types think they are the worst type and they are not. No type is any better or any worse. There's no like good or bad in the Enneagram. There really isn't. It's all just what is. Any characteristic that you have that is working for you, great. If it's not working for you, just work on it. You know, it's not that it's bad. You're not bad. 
you know, one thing that the Enneagram does is it kind of takes us a little bit more objective, you know, rather than I'm angry or I'm an angry person. I'm not an angry person. I just every once in a while get a little frustrated. The feeling that kind of comes on me, but it's not who I am. Yes. You know, it allows us to not identify with these feelings or these roles. It's they're not who we are. They're just patterns. Yeah. And they're patterns that are serving us most of the times. I love Emory how you keep coming back to compassion, particularly for yourself. That's critical. I think it's critical in life, right? Like just mm-hmm. in life, no matter where you are or what you're doing in your life, to have compassion for yourself in this particular time in the world with shelter in place and COVID and the way we're all yes. being turned upside down, it's important that we have compassion. We're spending more time with the people that we're closest to. So all these patterns are coming out even more. You know, we used to be able to like go to work or go to school or go away from, but now we're just in it with each other. Yes. Yes. So having that compassion is so important. Right. And actually this environment is, can be helpful in you seeing yourself more accurately because like you said, they're going to come out more strongly, both the positive parts of our, our type and the ones that are more challenging. So look for how your giftedness is serving the community right now or serving you in this time. Yeah. And stop trying to be something you're not like just accept your type and who you are and make the most of it. So this has been great. And I definitely hope you can come back and we could talk more because we, you and I both know how much more there's to talk about, but last but not least, how do people type themselves? I, I want to point them to your test, online test, but what are ways people type themselves? Because I know one thing people do is they attach to little labels like, oh, fun, you must be a seven, or controlling, you must be an eight. So yeah. you, you talked about this a little bit earlier. How do you type yourself and then point us to your test, which I love. Okay. It's my favorite one out so there. So the, the best way to type, to, to be typed is to talk to somebody who's an expert, but that can be costly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're doing it on your own, I suggest that you take an online test. There are a lot of online tests and a lot of not very good online tests. They will just give you a number and you cannot rely on that number. My test has been a culmination of you know 20 years of experience typing thousands of people and it's pretty good. Yeah, it's say. great. I've been pointing it, a lot of people to it. I love it. It's my favorite one out there. Great. And I think it, it, it's at least as probably more accurate than any of the other tests that I'm aware of. But I don't think it's actually possible to have 100% accuracy in the online test. So, well, I'm a perfect test. example because yeah. I took the online test and I was a two. And then you. Oh, t- I talk to people all the time who, are, who take it and think they're a two, and then they go their life thinking they're a two, and they're not. So what I suggest that everybody do is take the test and then do a little bit more reading about your type. Just to confirm, um, my test, it narrows it down for you. So when you get your the last page of the test, it'll say these are the possibilities, and there's some paragraphs there, and you choose a paragraph. Now, if you're not sure about that, then you're going to want to go read about the other types. Your type is going to be one of those paragraphs. Because what it does is it eliminates the ones that are not possibilities for you. 
your type does not change throughout life. Right. It doesn't. So it, you have to kind of look at your patterns over the course of your lifetime. Not right now, especially if you've done some personal growth work or if you're in a particular time of stress, it's going to show up a little bit differently. So in answering the questions on the test, think about the you that's been kind of consistently you throughout your lifetime. Yeah. One of the things that I point people at, because people often say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a lot of all of these. And that's true of all of us. We, are, we have a lot of the elements of all of the different types in each of us, but it's the underlying right. belief system in the worldview that I continue to point people towards, like, just pay attention to that part of you. Exactly. So if you, once you've taken the test and you go and look at the types to see which one, if this is the correct one or which one you might relate to the most, look at the worldview and the focus of attention. Those are the two things that I think are most helpful in identifying your type. Don't get caught up in the characteristics. Like Anne-Marie said, competitive. Anybody can be competitive. So don't try not to get bogged down in that and just look at the worldview and the focus of attention. And it's about self-awareness again. Like when I was typed in Enneagram 2, I really liked that because that's a helper and that's someone who's a giver and who doesn't want to be perceived that way. So it was really easy for me to accept I'm a two. And so I think be, be careful to catch yourself in wanting to show up as a particular type. Right. Or not wanting to. Or, often the, often our type is the one we're going to be most reactive to. It's like, Oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and we, so we don't want to admit that about ourselves, but often that's our type. Yeah. For me, the Enneagram has helped me, you know, go deeper in self-awareness, have better relationships, be better in my business, run my business, be better working with others. I know that this is such a useful tool and I encourage everyone to pop over. I highly encourage Debbie's test, Enneagram.is. We'll put it in the show notes. Debbie, how has, um, what's been the biggest help to you in your life with the Enneagram? Well, I think most important to me is my relationship with Jim, my husband, and my kids, hmm. because it is—it just has given me so much understanding of who they are and how to be with them. And you know, Jim and I have been married for twenty years, and we, to this day, we, every time we have any kind of conflict, we can see how it's just our enneagram pattern showing up, hmm. and so that—that's really helpful. And then, I mean, oh my gosh, I just. I love my kids so much and you know we have such a big happy family we've got right now we've got 19 people in our you know immediate family and we all just get along so well and I attribute a lot of that to the understanding of of our Enneagram types the kids all know their types they like it they were resistant when they were younger but now they really uh, embrace it at what stage in life do you think it's best to take the test and type yourself because I know we've talked about, like, don't do it when you're 12 and 13 years old. When you're interested and ready, you can do it. I wouldn't encourage parents to get their 12 and 13-year-olds to take it or to form a strong opinion about what type your kids are. Got it. I mean, if you see tendencies in a five-year-old that might be a type, great. You know, be open to that, but don't be fixed about what type they are. I think if there's a 13-year-old who's really interested and wants to take a test, I don't see any reason not to. Do you think our type, like by the time we're 18, 19, 20, 22, where our type is 
we know it. It's not that we know it, but it's it's already evident. One thing we do need to pay attention to with younger people is their personalities are still forming and you want to allow them to form. You don't want them to try to work out these kinks before they're fully formed. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why a lot of Enneagram teachers will say your type shows up most strongly in your 20s because that's kind of when we're full of ourselves and great. We want that to happen. You know, we don't want to interfere with that growth. Can you give me a famous person for each type? So some of these, I'll give you a couple of them. So type one, I would say Emily Post and Mahatma Gandhi, (laughs) (laughs) kind of representing different characters of the type. Type two, Mr. Rogers, Desmond Tutu. Type three, Michael Jordan, Tom Cruise. Type four, David Bowie, <laughs> Vincent Van Gogh. Type five, um, Bill Gates, Buddha, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny one. Yeah. That they're in the same um, category. Yeah. Type six, um, let's see. Well, Eva Knievel would be a counterphobic six. Huh. And then type seven, Benjamin Franklin, an inventor, Robin Williams, probably. He came to mind when. We yeah. Did What's Einstein? Einstein's probably a five. What about eight? Uh, or eight. Eight. Oh, Donald Trump on the one <laughs> side. <laughs> um, What's um, Barack Obama? Well, I think Barack Obama is a nine. But there's a lot of disagreement about that. Okay. Um, but I, I, you know, just being a nine and I, first of all, I want to claim him, but he, I think he's, there's a lot of qualities that I think point to nine. Oh, but I'm trying to think of who's a positive eight. Oh, oh, Vanessa Williams or Serena Williams. Serena, Serena Williams. Williams. Okay. Yeah. And nines, Barack Obama, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> Robert's asking, what about Kanye West? I don't know him well enough. I'm maybe an eight. Do you know Dennis Rodman? Yeah, Dennis Rodman would be an eight. And LeBron James? Uh, I don't know, but maybe a three. And Steve Jobs? I don't know. Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs is a a good, you know, a lot of speculation about him. I think some people speculate he's an eight and some think he's a five. Probably got some of both of those. Oh, yeah, interesting. Uh-huh. What about Martin Luther King? Martin Luther King, um, oh, he's probably an eight. Oprah Winfrey. Three. Ah, really? Yeah. I think she's a three. She's a sub, There's a subtype that looks like a two because she's all about other people, but she's on the cover of every magazine and it's all about O and yeah. <laughs> twos probably wouldn't do that do that yeah this is fun that's a fun game to play like type this it is a fun game yeah thank you debbie this was so fun i love this work yeah great it's so fun being with you too and i love the work that you're doing in the world Marie. thanks debbie thanks for being a part of it (laughs) yeah you're welcome
that was my conversation with Debbie Burdett. You can find out more about her and her work on the Enneagram at enneagram.is. We've also included lots of relevant social media handles in the show notes, along with the discount code if you'd like to go take the Enneagram test over on her website. Now for some homework. Go download the test, see what your result is, and then check it out. Read a little bit and determine your type using the discount code BREATHE, B-R-E-A-T-H-E, for $5 off. And head over to my Instagram page and share your type with me. Okay, that's all for now. May you breathe easily, take it one moment at a time, and keep doing the things you love. And I'll see you next time. The university's executive producer is Tyler Green of thestoryproducer.com. This podcast is also produced and edited by Katie Clarkson. The university team also includes Marcia Craig, Ashwath Narayanan from Culture Media, Adam Harris, and Kim Redding. The university is a production of Bring It Home, founded by Anne-Marie Chiresso. You can find out more at A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E-C-H-E-R-E-S-O dot me. Or follow us at Anne-Marie Chiresso on Instagram. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast app, and write us a review. It really does help us have more of an impact in the world. Thanks so much for listening in, and I look forward to seeing you next time. I have to fix things and make the world a better place. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so true.